You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it out, but that as seed sown in good ground it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. I'm just going to close this. Uh, that was a prayer taken from a dead guy. Who then was it was taken by another guy called Jonathan Gibson from his book uh, "Be Thou My Vision," which is kind of like a prayer. Uh, um, yeah, it's a it's a his take on a prayer book. Um, so his kind of his book of common prayer. Uh, so it's not really common, but I've just started using it. Um, if it's something you're interested in, I can talk to you about it later. But so why the book of Haggai? Uh, the book of Haggai is a call from God to consider uh, our lives. Was everyone here last week? Terry, were you here last week? Okay. Yeah. So the word consider is repeated th- throughout this book. Uh, and through the prophet Haggai th- and this short book, God is challenging us to reflect and to uh, ponder and consider what our lives are about, what are our priorities, what is our treasure, and where is our treasure stored. And so he's encouraging us to reorientate our lives our desires and our everything around Him, uh, which is a good thing for us to be doing at the beginning of a new year. I still can't really believe that it's 2022. Uh, Does it get easier as the years go on, like that you just assume the next year's coming? (laughs) Just so it happens so quickly. Yeah. Well, just for some... Reminding, my Old Testament knowledge is pretty poor, but so let's be reminded about what this book is all about. The book of Haggai is written uh, as an account of the words of God spoken through the prophet Haggai. Uh, in chapter 1, we learn that the word of God came to Haggai during the second year of Darius the king. Uh, and I just want to highlight why this is important that we think about that. Uh, firstly, because it reminds us that this happened before Jesus was on the scene. So we need to get our minds in the pre-Jesus kind of setting. Uh, we're, rem- we're reading the Old Testament where God's promises have not yet fi- found their fulfillment. Uh, and secondly, this helps us to understand the context that it's being written in. So God's people, Israel, have just returned to the promised land, uh, but they're still under foreign rule. So Darius is the king and he's a Persian. And they're waiting for the time that God would establish his kingdom on the earth uh, and put, his son, put a son of David on the throne forever. So the destruction of the temple is a sign of all that's gone wrong for the people of Israel. Uh, It's represented the presence of God, and it often accompanied uh, the blessing of God. And so we need to keep in mind that, you know, the temple's been destroyed. uh, They've been off in exile. uh, Everything is kind of going wrong for the people of God. So Rebecca reminded us last week that the temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. uh, in Jerusalem. And there'd been uh, the Assyrian and Babylonian exile, uh, which the Babylonian exile became the Persian exile as Persia destroyed Babylon. And in 538 BC, uh, I can't keep this all in my head, so I 
don't blame you if you can't. In 538 BC, the Persian king Cyrus the Great issues an edict that all the exiles can return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple there. Uh, and about 50,000 exiles return to Jerusalem. And when they get, get back, they begin to work on laying the temple foundation, uh, which is great. But the returned exiles, they become lazy, as we see last week, as we saw last week. Uh, their new life in Jerusalem gets clouded with other interests. They get distracted by foreign threats of invasion. And there's some uh, internal division going on so that the temple work comes to a stop. So when Haggai opens in the second year of Darius the king, we can conclude that the Israelites have been back in Jerusalem for about 19 years. And yet, even though they've been there for 19 years, the temple is still not built. And so last week, we looked at chapter 1, and we saw that God has a desire for us to consider. God has a desire for us to reorientate our lives around Him. And God has a desire to dwell in relationship with us. And so in Haggai's day, this reorientation and renewal of relationship was to happen as the Israelites became less concerned about themselves and their own lives and more concerned with God and His temple. At the end of chapter 1, we read that the Israelites received God's message to them and they began to work again on the temple. So with all that in mind, all that context, we're heading into chapter 2. So can I get a volunteer to read chapter 2 verses 1 through 9? And we'll just be looking at chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 today. Uh, I'm going to work through this passage kind of top to bottom, uh, but is there anything that stands out to any of you uh, on first hearing that? And with everything that we learned about last week and the context that's going on. Yeah, I don't know about last week. Yeah. What I noticed was um, the Lord said that things were going to be better. Right. So much better yeah. this time. Yeah. That's, that's what we're Yeah. That's great. Was there anyone who had seen the temple? Great question. Uh, I presume so, and I'm going to say that. It, it, but I presume, people yeah. People in their, I read that mm-hmm. folks in their 70s and older would have, would have, would yeah. have seen the, the original temple and remembered it. Yeah. And probably weren't many because you didn't live that long. But Yeah. I mean, this is where my uh, knowledge of dates really fails me because I'm like... How much time is there between 587 and where we are now, which is about 520? So about 60 years here, 67. So, so a 10-year-old Yeah, right. Seen it and have yeah. some memory of it. So imagine a 10-year-old, which I was about a 10-year-old, when 9-11 happened. So, but yeah. you remember it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember it. Will I, I'll, yeah, I'll probably remember it when I'm 70. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. But great question. Any any other thoughts before we get lost in the text? Well, I thought it was interesting that when they asked, when they asked that question, who saw it and how do you see it now? It's a, a sort of good juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, uh, is is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's kind of a double negative. It's hard, but it. I think he's saying, isn't it something? Is kind of how I read it. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Anything from you, Carolyn? All of the above. <laughs> well, let's go. So let's go to verse one. As we see in verse one, uh, this chapter begins uh, after Israelites have been working on the temple for about a month. 
Uh, so again, the word of God comes through the hand. I thought that was a weird... comes by the hand of Haggai. It's obviously not coming through his hand. Maybe it did, who knows? But uh, it's coming through the prophet Haggai. He's addressed to Zerubbabel, which I think is a great name for a, a child. Um, the governor of Judah, Joshua the high priest, and the remnant that is the people of Israel. Again, so I, I've been thinking about... Uh, the way that I think about reading the Bible um, is two ways. Uh, first of all, what does the text say? What does the text mean? And then how does it apply to us? And that's kind of what we're going to do today. But looking at the overarching story of the Bible, uh, we want to think about it in kind of uh, the Goldworthy uh, way or the um, God's big picture way where what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. So whenever one of those things isn't kind of happening in the Old Testament, there's always problems. So here we see it's addressed to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. So it's not he's not the king, uh, you know, he's not ruling. Uh, um, and so we again need to remember that uh, all that God wants for the people of Israel is not happening right now. And so verse 3, he addresses the people uh, who have probably been feeling uh, and saying among themselves these things. Uh, there were probably some people who are old enough to remember the former glory of Solomon's temple, and who are now comparing it to the current building project. So, I, Seton, I think... Was it Seton? Is that right? Yeah, sorry. I think I'm going to contradict you here, but that's okay. You're not a bad person. Um, I think they were actually... God is kind of trying to say, hey, nothing is... You haven't been doing a lot of work yet, and it doesn't... You, you're probably feeling a little bit dejected at the sight of this foundation. So when it says... Um, is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's nothing. Yeah, it is. I think I think it is nothing. Um, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? It's, yeah, double negatives are really hard. Even trying to explain double negatives. As I was thinking about it in my head after I said it, I was like, well, hold on, I say, isn't it something? Yeah. And this is, isn't it nothing? Yeah. yeah, right. But that's a good question. That's a good question of the text, and we should always be asking those. What is actually God trying to say there? Well, and, um, um, yeah, yeah. My understanding is that the temple that they are going to end up building will be a lot smaller and less glorious than Solomon's. So yeah. that even at the foundational level, they're realizing we're not replicating what we once had. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, so on that note, if you remember under the reign of King Solomon, all of the nations of the world were bringing their wealth to him. So in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 10, 23-25, we read, Thus King Solomon excelled in all the kings of the earth, in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his, uh, his present articles of silver and gold, garments of myrrh and spices and horses and mules, and so much year by year. So the temple that Solomon built was glorious. Uh, through it, God blessed the people of Israel, uh, but now, these many years later, the temple is in ruins, uh, and to those in Haggai's time, it probably felt it probably felt like God had abandoned them. Uh, you know, under Solomon, everything's going well, and now the temple's in ruins. Where is God in this in this moment? So then, in verse four, God gives them a word of encouragement, telling them to be strong and to work, even though their labor may be may seem futile. They continue to work. They are to, to continue to work because God is with them in all their endeavors. His spirit remains in their midst. 
Therefore they should not be afraid. For just as God was with them when he spoke to Moses and made a covenant with them and when he brought them out of Egypt, and just as he was with them when he spoke to Joshua as they were headed into the promised land, so again God is with them. Now I want to dwell on this for a little bit. Uh, it seems like an obvious thing that God's presence would be a good and helpful thing, that the creator of the heaven and the earth could probably help out on a building project like this. Uh, but often when we say, God be with you, uh, it can come across as kind of a pleasantry, can't it? Uh, and so I want to think about what it means for God's presence to actually be with the Israelites. Uh, and one commentator writes, The personal presence of the Lord gives courage, determination, and conviction that he will not permit his cause to fail. But even saying that, thinking about uh, our life as Christians, God's presence in our life doesn't mean that everything's going to succeed. But, you know, God, you know, God saying that I'll be with you assumes that. Um, but ultimately, when God is fighting our battles, when God is in control, we know that all things do work out for the good of those who love him. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, in our present reality, it might seem like everything is, but in spiritual and eschatological reality, God does have the victory. So his, his presence does mean something, uh, even if it's not felt or even if it's not uh, seen personally. Well, moving to verse 6 and 8, uh, God then ramps it up. Uh, not only will he be with them as they work, but in just a little while, God will shake the whole world, all the peoples, and uh, he'll shake all the peoples and cause all the people and their wealth to come into the temple and fill it with glory, just as he did with Solomon. For all the earth belongs to the Lord, and though currently the nations of the world are holding on to it, soon it will become God's possession once more. And the people who remember the beauty and splendor of Solomon's temple, uh, built with the finest timber from Lebanon and the finest silver and gold, need not worry about the splendor of this temple. For God is going to provide the wealth of the world, and this new temple will be uh, maybe even more glorious. Who knows? No? Uh, verse 6 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, if you remember that. Uh, chapter 12, verse 26, where the author of Hebrews goes on to explain that God is going to shake the earth uh, to remove the shakable things so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Uh, this this, they say, is cause for reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, and what they're picking up on here is that throughout the Bible, uh, God's appearance and the presence of God was usually accompanied with kind of uh, all sorts of violent events in nature. Uh, think Moses and the burning bush or uh, at Mount, Mount Sinai when the, the mountain shakes. Uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, says Hebrews 10.31. And so, even though God's presence is, you know, sh should be a good thing for sinners like you and I, it can, it can be a fearful thing, uh, even though, you know, as Christians we have Jesus' blood, which is good. But in, so verse 9, in this case, it means that the glory of the temple will surpass, will surpass the glory of the one that came before it. Uh, so, what does verse 9 say? The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So, um, Carolyn, let's interact on your thought that it's not going to be. Where did you read that and what was that, What were they saying? I read it in um, 
New Testament commentary in, in relationship to Jesus okay. being yeah. in the temple. And I'm just wondering if that's not what God is talking about and that this glory will be greater because Jesus will actually, the, the eternal temple is actually going to... His presence will walk... He, he will be... With feet into the... years old. He, I mean, he, yeah. seven days old. He'll, yeah. He'll be, and he will actually dwell in that temple. Yeah. Um, and he will... And then, I mean, I think that's really more... Mm-hmm. And I'm not... I'm, I was thinking, you know, this the second temple that they're constructing, it's not that it wasn't glorious. Right. It just was smaller um, dimensionally and, and less grand yeah. than the first one yeah. but isn't that what God always does he makes all things new right yeah, yeah. Um, well and that kind of gets to what I'll talk about in a moment um, I was reading uh, commentaries that said it would be more glorious than Solomon's but um, you know who knows what, yeah. the, what the reality is but um, there's always this tension uh, in Old Testament prophecy in Old Prophecy of what God says and what God means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like God is promising that the glory of this house will be even more glorious. Is that like a physical house that he's talking about or is that the eternal house that he's talking about? And so, um, yeah, what is the divine intention behind this promise? Uh, so we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to think about, of, about reading this in light of Christ. Uh, one scholar I was reading talked about how the prophets were speaking both of their times and of the mind of God. So that's what I've just been saying. Uh, their message was both time-bound and also timeless, where the time-bound message may have been fulfilled partially or failed to be completely fulfilled. The timeless message of God's divine intentions is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we're on the, we're on the right track here. So on this side of history, we know that Though the temple was rebuilt and was very impressive under Herod, it was only temporary, because it, again, was destroyed in AD 70. Uh, Still yet to be built, rebuilt. Does this mean that God's promises are futile? You know, he promises here that the glory of the former house will be, uh, sorry, the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house, and in that place I'll grant peace. You know, has, has God failed to produce that promise? Well, as Paul says uh, throughout his letters, by no means. We need to read this passage, as with all of the Bible, in light of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So how do we read this passage in light of Jesus? Well, Jesus is the temple of the Lord. Ultimately, the temple that God wanted them to build uh, was a physical representation of what Jesus was to come. That is, the temple is a sign that points beyond itself to Jesus. So that all that the temple represents is found in Jesus. Uh, so what are, those, what are some of those things that it represents? Well, it represents God's presence. In the same way that God promised to be present with those who are building the temple, we have, a, we have an even greater promise of God's presence in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we can appropriate these promises in our lives, not as encouragement to build another temple. So we don't read this and be like, oh great, God's with me and go build another temple. But through knowing that by the Holy Spirit, God is with us in all that we do. It is in confidence, it is confidence in this knowledge that Paul writes Romans 8, you know, I'll be with you. Uh, Secondly, relationship with God. The temple was the place in the Old Testament where 
that people would go to be in relationship with God. And this relationship involves sacrifices and prayer and communing with others. It was through the temple that the people could be with God. But now it's through Jesus that we have a relationship with God. We no longer worship at a temple because through Jesus' death and resurrection we are now in an intimate relationship with God and have direct access to Him. So we don't have to do any more sacrifices. We can boldly enter not just into the Holy of Holies, but into the very throne room of God by the blood of the Lamb. Praise be to God. And then thirdly, we find peace and God's glory in Jesus. So Bill Dumbrell, he's an Australian uh, dead theologian. He writes, The building of the temple would, by its placement, bring peace to the promised land. Haggai sees its erection as a necessary preamble to the ushering in of the eschatological age. Eschatological age meaning the age that is to come. So God will rule from it, not merely dwell in it, and God's shaking of the nations will draw the wealth and submission of the world to Jerusalem. Uh, so the rule of God through the presence of God in the temple of God finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's only when we are perfectly in submission to God's rule under his king, Jesus, that we will experience that peace that God's talking about. And that ultimately will be fulfilled in the age to come, though we feel that in our lives in Jesus Christ right now. Uh, and it's in Jesus, particularly his death and resurrection, that God's glory is displayed. And this is carried through to the new creation where we'll be gathered around the throne worshipping the Lamb uh, and, and praising him and, and calling out glory to him, uh, to the Lamb who was slain. Any thoughts or questions before I wrap it up in a nice little bow? I'm just struck that, you know... Yeah, go, Carol. Um, at, the, at the moment of crucifixion, the temple, the curtain was torn right. from, two, from right. top to bottom. Right. And, I mean, that was that was the beginning of um, Jesus replacing the yeah. the temple with right. his eternal temple. Yeah, it can almost be seen as judgment upon the people of Israel. Like, this is, you have failed. This has failed. Jesus, but now Jesus is here, and this is good news. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think it, it, it was a great gift. No right. longer was there a veil right. between the Holy of Holies and yeah. us. Yeah, praise be to God. Yeah. yeah. So what are some implications or applications for this from this text for us? Well, uh, we too, like the Israelites, can dwell on the past uh, and think about the good old days and how much more glorious they were. Uh, we like, um, sorry, we can be like them in, in thinking the glory of the former days were surpassing the current situation, <laughs> and especially maybe during COVID, that is very true. Uh, the good old days of 2019, pre-COVID. I guess it wasn't, but you know. Uh, sometimes this can be helpful, as those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, but however, usually dwelling on the past just distracts us from what God is doing in this present moment. And it can often lead us to laziness or inaction as we just sit around wishing that things were like they used to be. So in our context in the Church of the Advent, uh, as we see mainline Christianity decline and with it the death of the Christian worldview, uh, even though it might seem tougher in these times, uh, God is still with us. He's still with us in his Son and by his Spirit. Uh, his very Spirit who raised Jesus from the death dwells in our hearts. And so, as a wise friend of mine says, we should 
celebrate the past and look forward to what God is going to do in the future. Uh, that in our children's old age, they might reflect on these times as the good old days because of the great works that God has done through us. Uh, he writes, we, should, we would be wise to celebrate what God has done before us and pray that the Lord will grant us a ministry that is worth remembering. So celebrate the past and look forward to what God is doing in the future. And then secondly, uh, holding on, this is kind of what we are talking about last week, but holding on to things that can be shaken. I really like that imagery that is in Haggai and then repeated in, in Hebrews. Um, last week we were encouraged to consider how we might be seeking after the things that can only be put into bags with holes in them. How we might be building our own t- uh, kingdoms, our own uh, paneled houses, uh, and we might be neglecting God's kingdom. Similarly, this week God is challenging us to think about what we are holding onto or looking to that can be shaken. The good news is that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, I have many more thoughts not on my lips right now about the shakenness, but we've got lots of nods down here from that. What are your... Brings to mind. What does that bring to mind to the two of you? Or Shirley, you want to? What? What are you nodding about? Just in agreement with what you're saying. I mean, I keep thinking when I see shaken, I keep thinking of the word sifted, and I know that's not what it says, but it for some reason keeps making me think of think of that, um, like the sifting of flour. I mean, that's essentially what it is. Like, you get this image of God shaking something so that all the crap comes off it and mm-hmm. it's just the pure gold is left. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts or questions? That's all I've got to say about that passage. Yeah. yeah, there's shaking the heavens and earth and the dry land and the silver's mine and the gold's mine. It's very, they're objects that he says he's going to bring in. And then you, you contrast that with sort of thinking about Jesus. There's, not, there's nothing physical about that. There's spiritual sort of presence. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a good word. Do you want, sorry, you want to keep going? No, I, I, um, what? I guess I was just, the only thing I'll say on that is that, um, sort of struggle with it is sort of saying he, he all of this is mine right and it's all going to be here but yeah and what actually comes if we're saying jesus is the, the temple right that's i guess it is a, a physical person but it's, it's more of the spirit i i, I take it as sort of the holy spirit yeah yeah so um and this is where the class gets a lot longer um so anything about the the situation that we are in now with the overlap of the ages. Um, and so this, when I say that this is fulfilled in Jesus, ultimately it's fulfilled when we, well, when Jesus comes back and the new heavens and new earth and everything that gets shaken and all the glory comes and, you know, 
we get that image of being around, we're all around the throne just praising God. Like that is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. Um, but in Jesus' first coming, he kind of brings that end into our present. Um, and through his resurrection, he really does that. So that we get a glimpses and we get to experience that end image even now. Uh, and so I think Ephesians 1 will say, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ right now. We're seated in the heavenlies right now. Uh, and so we're in this kind of overlap where Jesus very much is the fulfillment of all of that God is saying, but we just can't really see that yet. Um, and we're still waiting for it to kind of happen. It's hard for my mind to get around it because it's like, it's fully happened and it's complete, but it's not. <laughs> And I don't know how to say that without saying something contradictory. <laughs> yeah. It's not yet, but it is. Yeah, the best way I can describe it is um, with the election of the president in this country, where you have the president-elect, and then you have Inauguration Day. And so he's, you know, he's going to be the president. It's happened. There's no getting around it. And then he gets inaugurated, and he's fully the president. That's kind of how I think about it, yeah. Cameron saying in a sermon talking about um, why he likes to walk, to rewatch Alabama's dog Because he's a crazy man. Well, he is that too, but because um, the ones where they've won because he knows right. the ending and he doesn't have to stress over it. He, does, he knows how it ends. Yeah. And I, that stuck with me. Yeah, it's really helpful. And we know who's won, if I can keep that in my mind and heart. Yeah. Um, then that should that should have an impact on yeah the way that level. the way that you live yeah <laughs> yeah. That's right. yeah yeah Terry any thoughts from you how does this passage uh, challenge you or encourage you good yeah yeah yeah. Well, let me pray for us in light of this. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks for uh, all the promises that you have for us that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him uh, that you are with us and that you go before us. We ask that you would help us to not hold on to the things that, be, that can be shaken, but that we would hold on uh, so steadfastly to you and your throne uh, that we might uh, seek it first rather than our own. And Father, we ask all these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.